What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Deconstructed these walls and I found a business Where the company line Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. And we have back on the podcast this week, we have Dan, our good friend from the You Have Permission Podcast. And he brought his friend Sari with him. And the two of them have been working on this project. And it's a really cool thing. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a resource that I wish had been around, you know, five plus years ago when I started on my personal journey of deconstruction. And it's it's really just a um, a one stop shop for resources, really. And so if you go there, it's got all sorts of things that they've found helpful uh, as they've gone. Uh, on their journey. And it's everything from podcasts to books, to articles, to videos, uh, anything you can possibly imagine. And it covers a whole host of topics. So they even have broken down, uh, in that way. So super interesting, super helpful. Um, I'm glad somebody did it. (laughs) And so, uh, I don't know technology that well, so it was never going to be me. Uh, but I'm glad that they did it. And, uh, you should guys should, should definitely check it out. Um, it's, uh, definitely, uh, something that um, I can't recommend highly enough. So so beyond that, obviously we talk about that on the episode, but uh, we also thought that it was um, a good time to kind of uh, touch back on just the idea of re- uh, deconstruction again, because we haven't really dedicated an entire episode uh, to the, the topic itself or um, the word itself even since our very first episode. And the irony of that is actually that uh, today, and I didn't plan this, I had no idea, I happened to look down and, and Facebook alerted me that one, or not one year ago, gosh, five years ago today is when we released our very first episode. And that very first episode, because we wanted to set the stage for what the podcast was going to be about, was about this word deconstruction that at that point, not a ton of people had heard of, um, that seems to be way more in the, um, in the in the mainstream consciousness now. Uh, this this 
funky word deconstruction. And uh, thank you, Jacques Derrida. We know that's not what you intended for this word. We're sorry. But uh, the word has kind of taken on a, a different meaning, obviously, within specifically within Christianity, but it could be applied to, to any religion, really. But it's given people a name for an experience that they're going through. And so it's, it's been very useful in that sense. And uh, it can mean uh, something a little different to different people. And so we thought it'd be good to, uh, to talk about it again. We haven't talked about it in a while. And, uh, and so we kind of give uh, our three different perspectives on it, uh, our different definitions of it, and uh, talk a little bit about our, our three journeys and how different they are and, and what kickstarted it. Uh, so uh, we talk about that. It, it was a really fun conversation. And uh, we also have some cool music to go along with it. And what better uh, music to have to talk about deconstruction than to talk about songs literally about that very topic. And so we bring back uh, a friend of ours, uh, Clay uh, Kirchenbauer uh, provided some some tunes for this episode, and we've used him before. Uh, he he operates under the name Forrest Clay, and um, it's just beautiful music. He's been working really hard on uh, over the last like several years. So, those of you who were at our live event uh, a couple of years ago in Denver got a sneak preview at some of these uh, songs. And uh, he's literally just been been working away um, on top of being a family man and 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 working a, a normal uh, nine to five type job, uh, trying to find the funds to 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 continue to uh, put the time and love into these songs uh, to do them justice. And so there's some beautiful string arrangements in the background, and and he's gotten a couple songs finished. And so uh, we wanted to, to to really highlight those and uh, let you guys hear those. Uh, So you'll hear a couple of those tracks throughout the episode um, and uh, we hope you enjoy them. So there's that. Uh, Go out and support him if you can. Uh, A lot of artists still having a hard time getting through the pandemic, obviously can't tour, can't really sell, uh, you know, t-shirts and merchandise and stuff in in concert because concerts aren't really happening, at least not in the way that we're used to. Uh, If you like what we're doing and you want to support the the podcast, uh, if you go to www.thedeconstructionist.com, of course, all the links are in the show notes, but if you go to our website, uh, it's a one-stop shop for everything. We have a a, uh, web store where we sell t-shirts and pint glasses and coffee mugs and all sorts of stuff like that. But there's also a link to our Patreon and our Patreon uh, helps us pay for some of the overhead costs of running a podcast and to do other fun things um, for the podcast. So if you want to support us there, you can. Uh, it, a really easy free way to support us, uh, if you don't have the means right now, is to uh, subscribe uh, to the podcast. Uh, tell a friend if you uh, have a friend that you think might uh, benefit from the podcast. And the easiest way is if you go over to iTunes, take a few minutes to write us a kind review and leave us a five-star review. That helps us gain exposure and get the podcast out to people who might need it. So as always, uh, really appreciate all of the love and support. Uh, one of the things we're working on right now, uh, we switched platforms a while ago uh, to a much, much better platform. But we are um, kind of pulling our episodes off of SoundCloud. So SoundCloud is the one and only way in which you listen to the podcast. Uh, please, please, please. Uh, there are a bunch of other ways to listen to it because we will be pulling uh, ultimately the episodes off of off of SoundCloud. So we'll still be available on all the major platforms. Uh, so don't worry about that. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play. Uh, we are now available on Amazon Music as well. Uh, we're available on iHeart uh, Radio, TuneIn Radio. Uh, you can stream directly through our website. Um, gosh, where else are we? Uh, 
we're, we're trying to get it set up on YouTube as well. So that way you have multiple different avenues in which you can continue to listen to the podcast. But if your sole way of listening is through SoundCloud, um, you know, we, we highly encourage you to, uh, uh, you know, to, to find us on one of the other apps or one of the other platforms. So, um, cause we will be removing our episodes from SoundCloud, uh, fairly soon if I can get around to it. Anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get to the, uh, the actual episode itself. Thank you guys so much as always for listening. We love you guys, uh, and really appreciate your love and support. Uh, and without further ado, let's get to Dan and Sari. All right. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Uh, I have a returning guest and then a new guest, Dan. Welcome back. And Sari, welcome for the first time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Absolutely. Well, Dan, you've got a project going on. And so um, before we get into the topic at hand, uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, very, very simple, straightforward. Um, I have, I'm starting my professional research career here. And the first thing I have is a survey about a range of experiences that people may have had in Christian church or Christian group settings. It's available to anybody who has ever been a Christian and is an adult. That's it. Uh, John, you have a link that you can put in the show notes to the survey. Should take 10 to 15 minutes. It might actually be quite interesting to take. And I would really appreciate it as, as it would help um, get some really robust data, not just on uh, progressive podcast listeners, uh, which is a group that I'm looking at, but also, uh, you know, English-speaking Christians more broadly. Awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely, like you said, have it in the show notes, and uh, we'll put it up on social media uh, and get the link out there. So if you want to participate, that would be a huge help uh, to Dan. So, um so the reason we had you guys on today was obviously to talk about deconstruction. And, and as we were kind of talking about before we started recording, uh, it's a topic that obviously is near and dear to us as we kind of uh, stole the name for our podcast. Namesake. Really, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and we get yelled at by uh, hardcore philosophers constantly uh, who assume we don't <laughs> actually know what it means. We really? Do. They yell at you? <laughs> oh, my gosh. We had to block some people, and I hate doing that. Like, they just got so nasty on social media. They're very, very angry about the fact that anyone has commandeered this name uh, for a use other than Derrida's intended uh, thing. But whatever. Um <laughs> I, you know, it, it, it's kind of one of those things where I'm like, look, you know, it's, it's, um, it's become a very useful term to describe what yeah. a lot of people within the Christian community have gone through. And so I'm, I'm not. Also you know. like, let's nitpick a little bit back. A lot of what people are doing to the extent that I understand the Derrida stuff, which I'm not a philosopher, but you know, contextualizing a situation, breaking down all the stuff that's not said, that's assumed underneath the surface, you know? Uh, like that is a lot of what's going on in faith deconstruction. It is not a separate activity. It's maybe an overlapping activity, we might say. Yeah, I would I would totally agree with that. And so, and and actually, one of the first questions I had for you guys because I, I I definitely want to hear uh, your take on it because you know the term deconstruction when you hear it, especially within the uh, the Christian context, means a lot of things to a lot of people. Right. Um, and so, you know, uh, Adam and I had kind of our our you know, pocket definition for it, uh, way back when, but, um, and of course, like we just said, it's been kind of commandeered, uh, to give a name to an experience, a lot of Christians and even non-Christians, it, it could be somebody within 
a lot of different, you know, religious traditions, um, have experienced or are experiencing, uh, but it seems to vary in meaning. So, uh, what does the term deconstruction mean to you? And, uh, why don't we start with the, the newcomer? Why don't we start with Sarah? What does that ter- term mean to you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I like what Dan said about the, the technical kind of definitions. That's, that's true. But what happens in my imagination when I hear about deconstruction is more the experiential aspect of it. It's sort of like the house that you had been living in literally deconstructs, like, <laughs> like crumbles and falls to the ground. So I guess what that would mean would be more like the story that you had um, that you had used to sort of view the world as, you know, used as your lens in, in seeing the world and making meaning from the world no longer works, no longer functions properly. Um, you know what, and sometimes that starts with a leak in the roof and, um, you know, before total disintegration happens and sometimes just there needs to be a remodel and sometimes the whole thing has to come down. Um, and there's a lot of different sort of inciting events that can cause that. But, um, but yeah, that's how I think of deconstruction. And like you said, I was really curious to hear your take after utilizing the term for your show for a bunch of years now, how, how useful and, um, healthy you thought it was to continue using it. But obviously, you know, it's practical, a lot, it's shorthand. A lot of people know what we're talking about when you use that term because it's become more popular to use. But the, we, we created the site and curated these resources for folks on, on our website because we hope that people will move towards reconstruction and, and sort of, um, you know, be generative and and making something new and more beautiful. That's actually kind of a a good segue into what I was going to say to Sari, because, you know, this is actually a pretty meta conversation, John, to be having because you started the deconstructionists, uh, in 2016 or so. I started a show called reconstruct with my buddy, John, I think a year later or something, maybe less, we were aware of your show and we kind of worried if people thought we would be, you know, doing a play on your name you know, we're like, ah, whatever, we're just going to roll with it. Um, and we, you and I had not met at that point. And then now Sari and I have made this, so your deconstructing.com thing. And our decision to use that word was like Sari said, it's just the word that people use and we don't, right. we're not particularly wedded to it. But it, it, it gets at most clearly this kind of, um, most clearly in terms of the word that is often used in the lexicon, it gets at it accurately of what's going on for a bunch of Christians who were raised one way and are having to kind of rethink many aspects of their faith. But it's, it's very funny to be talking about deconstruction and reconstruction on the Deconstructionists podcast <laughs> with the former host and creator of the Reconstruct podcast and co-creator of the SoYou'reDeconstructing.com website. And I don't really care about the term at all. Like it doesn't, I don't, it has very little personal meaning to me. It's just like a good shorthand for all the particular stuff that, you know, you and I like to talk about on our shows and all the stuff that Sari and I um, thought should be included and, and that people have given us input should be included on the site. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you should say that because, uh, we, we are by no means, uh, married to the name either. And in fact, we, we've had kind of a, um, a love hate relationship with the term. And, and when, uh, when we picked it, when Adam, uh, really 
presented it, you know, we were trying to figure out like, all right, what are we going to name this, this conversation that we're having, um, knew that it would be kind of a provocative term. And it probably wasn't as much in the lexicon at that point as it is now. I mean, there's deconstruction, you Google it, there's a bazillion things that pop up now. And there's a whole host of of podcasts that didn't exist, you know, back when you and I were first starting out even. And, uh, um, but yeah, it was just, it was just kind of a term that, that was starting to become, you know, synonymous with kind of like the spiritual journey and kind of tearing away things that no longer worked anymore. And it it just kind of worked uh, for us, but we definitely had kind of a hard time with it too, because a lot of people, at least in the early days, kind of uh, got it confused with destruction, which is not what we were uh, about, not what we are about. Uh, and so it's, it's funny because if you look at, um, our logo, we have deconstruction and reconstruction in kind of the, the, um, the logo. And, right. uh, at one point we added the brackets to do the D and the E. So yeah. it's D and then construction. Um, so thank you, Rob Bell for that. Cause we were like, yeah, we can, we can change these. Yeah. Just put brackets around the D and E. We're like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> so That's, he's, he's a pretty good marketer. That's a good idea. It's got a good marketing brain. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so for us, it always kind of meant, I, I like what Sari, I like what you said about, um, you, you know, kind of, I, I think the, the example I always used to give when people would ask me is kind of like, uh, you know, a ship that's getting ready to leave port, you know, like I've been on a couple cruises and, you know, you, you look at the ship before it leaves port and you always see the same thing, right? They're getting the ship ready. They're putting a fresh coat of paint on it. They're, they're checking for leaks, you know, making sure this thing is ready for the ocean, uh, you know, so that you don't get out there and the thing sinks in the middle of the sea, you know? And so for me anyway, uh, deconstruction has always been, you know, kind of this, this idea of looking at your faith from the inside and looking for kind of those leaks and, and making it ultimately, hopefully stronger and, and more, um, uh, able to, uh, survive the storms as they come along. Yeah, I think a lot of the problems that I feel about the term have to do with it being sort of carrying negative connotations. And maybe maybe it kind of sounds negative. Um, but I also think that I probably some of those negative connotations come from more conservative evangelical, you know, baggage that I carry where you know, you, you say that term and it just is like, oh, these skeptical doubters and they're just really looking for a way to way out or for a way to like have premarital sex or for a way to like, they, they secretly <laughs> want to really like, is. Look, I, didn't, <laughs> yeah. I didn't need deconstruction to do that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, they just want to like, they, they're just on their way to atheism and they're just not being honest about that or something like that. They're on some slippery slope or but whatever, you know all the backsliding. It was interesting <laughs> about that argument is that there is a psychological nugget of truth to that argument about people in general. Like people do bend over backwards uh, and do all kinds of mental gymnastics oftentimes to justify what they want they to do. Want to, yeah. But where where it really becomes, I think, a bad faith argument is when that when that critique is only trained on the other team and not on myself or members of my own team. Whereas, you know, I mean, I think one way of talking about the way that uh, prominent evangelical leaders have treated Donald Trump is they have bent over backwards and done a lot of mental gymnastics to justify things that they really want to do or believe or be a part of. 
or power that they want to hold or positions they want to hold, knowing what their congregants or listeners or readers care about because of all the Fox News that they watch. So it's like the it, it gets at something real, but we need to apply it evenly and we need to apply it to ourselves as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's actually, um, and we we can kind of flip to this question. This is uh, another question I have for later on, but um, I I think that's a good segue into it. And that's this idea. And, uh, and I think, I think I've seen it and I'm sure you guys have seen it as well. Uh, Anybody who's on social media and paying attention probably sees this, but there's, there's definitely this, um, uh, this uh, risk involved in deconstruction in the sense that you could swing the absolute opposite uh, polar opposite direction, meaning that you could give up one form of fundamentalism for another. You're just, you're just replacing one expert, uh, with another expert. And, you, you know, you're just carrying on that, that fundamentalist type mindset and tradition. So how do you, how do you go through a deconstruction? How do you do a, do it in a healthy way where you're not necessarily burning the entire house down? Cause certainly there are podcasts and there are, uh, folks out there who are just like, so jaded and, and so, uh, you know, in, in, in some cases, rightfully so angry about, you know, the, the trauma and, and the things that they've experienced growing up that they just want to burn the whole damn thing down. But yeah, how do you do it in a healthy way where you're not trading one, you know, false messiah for another, so to speak? Right. The, I think I don't have all the answers. And I think Dan, actually, this comes up a lot lately. And, um, and, and actually, like Dan has, I think, some really constructive thoughts on this. But I will say that um, trauma is a big part of this. And totally. trauma and suffering are often triggers for sort of changing the way you view the world. And um, that can be positive or it can be really negative and unhealthy. And it sort of runs parallel with how well you deal with the trauma you've experienced um, so I think that if it, the, the more, the more healthy practices you pursue in healing from the trauma and the pain, um, the more healthy your deconstruction slash reconstruction can be. Um, and that's why our website isn't just, oh, here's an article with different views on hell, or here's why, you know, here's some views on whatever, women in the church and what's up with patriarchy. You know, it's not just that. We also have um, a section on community and finding healthy communities. We have a section about um, therapy and finding a good therapist. We have a section about spiritual, private spiritual practices to, you know, help you stay connected to God and all these ways that you can holistically, um, you know, be a human being and, and treat yourself um, in healthy ways. So I, I think that's at least like a part of it. Dan, you want to? I think uh, you're, you're obviously right about that. Um, it's a very good question, John. It's, it's one that I wish you had sent me beforehand, frankly, because <laughs> so it's a hard, no, I mean, it's fine. It's, it's fun to think on my feet, but it's a difficult one. It's kind of, it's kind of the million dollar question in this space in some, in some ways, right? Because it can be so cathartic to just listen to people ripping on the the organizations and structures that caused you pain. And that catharsis is real. Uh, and we need some catharsis sometimes. That's a good step, you know, in a in a separating, in an individuation process, as far as I understand, and from my own experience. 
But, you know, Sari's talking about healthy options. And I think that healthy, um, it's good It's good language. Of course, there's the question of like, well, how do I do that? And what what actually is healthy and what's not healthy? Um, what, one thing, you know, that's too big of an answer, too big of a question to answer, but I have a thought. I want to compare something that Richard Rohr says to something that uh, comes up in the psychological literature. So one of Rohr's phrases is to is transcend and include. And I don't know if he came up with that or if he got it from someone else. Uh, John and Sari, I'm sure you guys are familiar with this. It's the idea that like you come from somewhere and you have you move beyond it whether you want to or not. That's one of the actually the interesting things about deconstruction. Quick tangent: a lot of conservative folks think that we choose to go through it, but that is almost never the case. It it happens to you, and that's an important part of understanding the process. But so that happens to you, and then you're you're beyond it. You're at a different place. What should you do? Should you completely reject it? Should you do the opposite of it? Should you say, whatever happened there, I will do the opposite of that? Or can you, in maturity, eventually find a way to include that part of your story in who you are today and have it inform, in a mature fashion, the decisions that you make going forward? And this is actually very similar to what a lot of cognitive behavioral therapists do, for instance. So cognitive behavioral therapy, which is you know one of the it's kind of the bell of the ball right now in the psychological, in the therapy world. It is, uh, briefly, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a method that says, look, what we think about the world affects our feelings about it and it affects our behaviors, our choices and our actions. And so if we can get in and change our thoughts and make them more accurate, then we will have better feeling and behavior outcomes. And this is true. It's been proven true. There's Tons of research on it is especially helpful in short-term situations, which is different than like long-term psychotherapy where you're talking about your whole narrative and stuff, which is actually probably closer to what Rohr is talking about. And I'm sorry for being so technical here. Um, But for instance, what cognitive behavioral therapy will do is it will identify what it calls cognitive distortions. And these are things that, as it turns out, it's very easy for human beings to start thinking these patterns that we very naturally fall into. And the one that I'm thinking of right now is called black and white thinking. And this is very common. It's a very human thing to happen. You think these are the good guys, those are the bad guys. Uh, You go from thinking all sex is bad until I'm married, you know, I can't even kiss, to then going all sex must be great all the time as long as 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 everybody says they're cool with it. both of those are actually instances of black and white thinking. Maybe as long as you're adding consent, it's got a slight shade of gray, but it's not looking at anything else like the maturity of the two people involved or the commitment level of the two people involved. It's not really asking what is sex for? What, in what ways would sex be in line with my values and goals for my life? And in what ways would it not be? It's just labeling it all good, all bad, whatever. So in that, that's one example of many where I think the mature path forward is to get rid of black and white thinking as much as possible and to recognize shades of gray, to recognize um, you know, a variety of, of views, and, and to then be open to having our own views changed by good evidence in the future because we're not so rigidly locked in. And I feel very self-conscious for how long I just talked. <laughs> no, that was all very good. 
I, um, I, I was really interested because when, uh, when I think about, uh, kind of this, this pattern that I see and, and not for everyone, but for some folks who, who come out of this very rigid fundamentalist kind of conservative background and then immediately dive in, uh, to the polar opposite and are railing, you know, right. against where they used to be. It, it almost mirrors to me anyway. Um, you know, this, this, like a person who grows up in an abuse with an abusive parent and then they start dating people who are, who mirror those traits, you know? So they've traded one in for, for another, both, both are bad, you know, the parent being abusive yeah. and then this, then the spouse later being abusive. Uh, but they've just kind of traded, you know, like one for the other. And it seems to me that's kind of, in a sense, what some folks do when they're going through deconstruction, they're too eager to jump into this new thing that feels right. And now that's, that's their new truth. You know, uh, it, it, from a psychological perspective, I guess, um, it, do, do you see a parallel with that? And, uh, and again, like, is there any way to, to avoid that? I, I like what Sari said about, um, you know, like trying to maintain like a healthy, uh, transition, I guess. Well, I could, I could talk clinically about it as, by the way, I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I'm studying to be one, but I'm a long way away from it. I'm just kind of, I'm buried in a lot of the literature because I'm in school right now. But actually, Sari, maybe you could answer this by talking about your own experience with deconstruction. Cause I know it involved a lot of therapy and like actual on the ground personal change. So I don't know, maybe you could use that to address this. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with what you're saying, John. It's like, and to piggyback what on, on what Dan said before, it's, it is a psychologically easy to just switch and say, good guys, these were the good guys. These were the bad guys. And now it's opposite, you know, whereas the, I think what, you know, clinical psychology does do and will do, will give you more time to think more nuanced and do sort of a compassionate reframe. And, um, and yeah, I mean, obviously I would hope that we would reject fundamentalism in in any context or form or any social group. But yeah, what Dan's referring to is that I, I went through a personal crisis. I had a really difficult job. I had a really difficult relationship that, um, where I was in a relationship with a drug addict for many years, and that ended in a in a, a very dramatic divorce, and um, and leaving. I, I left a, a career actually altogether, so I was just in pieces and started um, a journey through therapy that just kind of changed who I was. Uh, changed. By, by the, you know, my personality changed and, um, I don't know, I, I completely changed most of what I thought about God, but, um, in most of the process was able to feel most of the time pretty close to God. Um, so, so yeah, and that started me that I met, my therapist went to Fuller Seminary and I was like, Hmm, I kind of want to go to Fuller Seminary. <laughs> so obviously she was in the psychology program, but I, uh, I ended up going and getting a master's in theology. And at that point was just a softer person. I was, um, tr- like I was transitioning out of a faith that was very much about having all your ideas, right? I was a very conservative reformed Calvinist <laughs> Christian. Um, and I, that just the the roof got blown off of all of that. I um, I was Siri, exposed not to, to interrupt you, but when the roof yeah. got blown up, got blown yeah. off. Do okay. you remember feeling a temptation to basically just 
trampoline to the other side? Did you have a tension between adopting a, a new kind of fundamentalism and like the slower, harder work of like learning how to critically evaluate things individually? And we've never talked about that. Mm-hmm. No, I actually didn't feel that temptation. Um, but that's that might be because. Uh, I actually don't know why that's because <laughs> I think You're it probably had person. to do with the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure because the social dynamics involved in my deconstruction were very weird. Like I felt pretty alone in it now, uh, or, or for a long time, I, I was the most liberal person like in secretly that I knew for a while. So, um, so yeah. And then I was just, I think I was just lucky to kind of, just well, that might that, you, might, that might be a little bit. That might be a key, though, Sari, that because you were surrounded by people to your right theologically, you, it was actually you know. So one of the things that most uh, probably a lot of people will be familiar with is this idea of plausibility structures. So um, a brief explanation, if I'm getting it right, is that you know the more people around you agree with you on something, the more plausible it seems to you that that's the case. So if you grow up in a cult and the cult is very successful at keeping you surrounded only by cult members, you will find the beliefs of the cult to be quite reasonable. And you will have a hard time imagining that good and smart people could believe anything other than the cult believes um, because you don't have access to those people. And so the flip side of that is if you find yourself like I inter- I interviewed uh, David Cassidy, who is a um, he's kind of like a never Trump conservative in the form of a pastor. So he's like an evangelical PCA pastor in Franklin, Tennessee, who is really speaking out against Christian nationalism and like not losing his congregation. And I, oh. well, that's one of the questions I asked him is how are you not losing your congregation by doing that? But one of the things he talked about to explain how he got there is that he was raised by a devout Democrat dad and devout Republican mom. And they had disagreements and they were civil. And he grew up in a household being taught and being formed in such, in such a way that you can disagree about this stuff. It's, you're, you, we're not going to demonize each other because we're literally married to each other. So right. I, I'm not married to a demon. I'm married to the person I fell in love with and started a family with, right? So maybe, Sari, your having been the most liberal person in the room might have been a blessing during that process because even if you had wanted to be in a complete opposite end far left echo chamber, the, the effort it would have taken you to do that. And the number of people that mattered to you that you would have had to cut off, that would have been a lot of effort and you were very unlikely to do that. And so as a result, you get a kind of a more balanced, uh, set of inputs during that season. Yeah. I mean, that definitely could have a lot to do with it. I was never able to, um, yeah, other, the, conservatives in my life because I was in, well, I was actually on a, on a church planning team, uh, at a church where most people, where I was probably the most, the least conservative person in the room at all times. So I was kind of locked into the situation of, of caring for people and, and helping plain liturgies and, um, doing some pastoral work with, with these folks. Um, and, uh, you know, 
a good therapist really helps you <laughs> kind of put things into perspective and, and frame things compassionately and all that stuff. So. We built a church on certainty that fears everything against it. Where the refugee suffers and the white... Just one of the things that I think is worth noting and that I've been thinking about a lot is that therapy is expensive. And a lot of us in this um, kind of educated podcast world, we go to therapy and have been to therapy. And of course it works. Therapy uh, very much works. I am devoting my life to learning how to do it. And it has helped me tremendously. And my dad has done it for a living for 40 years. Um, but it's not cheap. And sometimes the people you can get through your insurance are not as good, or it's harder to know if they're good or find a good one. And it's, it is a luxury item in a lot of senses. And one of the things that I'm so curious about is like, how can that be solved? How can we, and how can we in the progressive podcast space, not just rely on, you know, the, the stuff we have privilege to access that not everybody has privileged access and not lean too heavily on that. I don't have an answer to that. That's like a, maybe like a career long question. And there are, it's a very, it's a very difficult question because one of the nice things about what you're paying for in therapy is you're paying for all of these review boards and licensure boards, uh, and people who can prosecute bad actors, you know, who ran, who damage people's lives and that stuff's not free. And so it's, it's really, it's a really tough one, uh, but I, I think about it every time that Sari tells her story of how therapy was such a big part of that. Going, there's probably some people thinking that sounds great, <laughs> but I can't afford yeah. therapy right now. You know? Yeah. Well, and the thing that it really provides is having a safe space to test out thoughts out loud, um, which sometimes, like if if I had a few close friends who I could just fully be myself with and just throw out half-baked thoughts and ideas and doubts and all that sort of thing, then a therapy relationship might not have been so key. But I think, I mean, that's that's a problem is a lot of these Christian communities aren't spaces like that. When right, it would be ideal if they were, if if churches were spaces that were like the most safe, you know. Yeah, Mark Karras has a term: your unholy huddle, and he says you need to like. He's a therapist, and he wrote a book called Religious Refugees. That's it's kind of a how-to guide for people who are deconstructing. And uh, we have an episode coming out soon on, on you have permission about it. And the unholy huddle is like, he's like, you need a, you need a couple people at least that are just, you can just talk through this stuff with, you would be shocked how much value that will bring. Just being able to like honestly speak and get feedback about stuff. And um, this is where I think geography comes in a lot too. Depending on where you live and the type of people in your physical community, uh, that can be much harder to come by if you live in the rural south versus you live in Seattle or Portland, like Sari and I do, where it's much easier to find those people. You can find some atheists who will hear you out. And you know, you don't have to agree with them, you don't have to become an atheist, but they don't, they're not gonna care. They're not gonna have a dog in that fight, you know? And uh, I mean, it'd be at least maybe they won't. <laughs> some of them, if they're militant, you know. 
right. Dawkins type atheist. That I wouldn't recommend that. But <laughs> you get you get my point. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's that is a, a very real uh, issue. We've we've had people who, I mean, just today actually, I, I had somebody who was a new listener who reached out and was like, "Hey, this is where I live. Uh, is there any way to connect me with other people who?" you know, are in a similar space. And we have no way of doing that right now, unfortunately. And it stinks because there are people who live in very small towns who feel very isolated and alone. And, and I get that, um, you know, like, like you guys, I I'm fortunate enough to live in a fairly large city where, you know, I could, I can go meet for coffee at any given moment with somebody who I could share my thoughts with without, you know, without worries. So yeah, we need to, we need an app for that, you know? That seems like the next level, doesn't it, Dan? Like I really, Sarah, I think it is, actually. I think they're, that's probably, it's either that or it's, uh, and honestly, I might put that above the therapist project, you know, database thing, because it can, it's almost like logically prior to going to therapy. Like, just have a few people you could talk about this with and maybe talk with them about whether or not you need therapy, you know, like, right. Like, yeah. yeah, I do think that maybe that's the next, that might be the next project for us to tackle with some, with some help from, you know, our colleagues and friends. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, we need a. We need to just maybe we can just take Christian Mingle and and just convert that over <laughs> to a uh, a deconstructionist kind of uh, friends <laughs> gathering type app. You know, yeah, we'll just use the base technology for for that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, or something like I know. I, I always I always say I'm like, man, I was born during the wrong. You know, I'm I'm too old and barely understand technology. Like if I knew how to do that sort of thing, like that would be the next. So somebody out there, I've been saying this for for years. Somebody out there who knows how to design apps and things uh, like that. There, there is a there is a need. There's a market for something like that. Oh yeah. For sure. Oh yeah. There really is. Yep. So, uh, so Sarah, you talked about, uh, and it's interesting that you brought up, you know, like the uh, kind of the the start to your your, your deconstruction, as it were, uh, being mm-hmm. this kind of traumatic event. And and I think that's so super super common. It, we we hear stories about what kind of kickstarted people's deconstruction, it's usually one of two things. It's either, uh, usually I just started asking questions and just kind of went down the rabbit hole and, you know, and it kind of kicked off from there or more often than not, unfortunately, it's more of a traumatic experience, like a death in the Mm -hmm. family or, or some, uh, awful experience that they had, um, you know, with, with, uh, people speaking on behalf of the church, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so talk about like, so talk about kind of how that, how your deconstruction started because of that trauma, but, uh, talk about where you are now. Like I, I'm interested to know, uh, kind of what, what resources when you first initially found yourself on this path, what kind of resources did you fall back to? And, and, and again, like, how, you know, where do you find yourself these days? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard to kind of construct a, a straight line because, um, yeah, what happened in me was just a, a different way of kind of just operating in the world. It wasn't so much about getting my, my ideas right. I started just sort of 
elevating my experience and trusting my instincts more and just not valuing, you know, correct ideologies and correct theology as much. Um, at first, that was correct the, the, the in first. air quotes, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Quote unquote, correct. Sound yeah, biblical so. doctrine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just holding really loosely to things that I used to just hold on tight to, you know, I remember I was a teenager and I was like in my, I think they call it like cage stage Calvinist phase when I was like in youth group and, you know, I'm sorry, be- hold on cage stage. <laughs> what what yeah. the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you, don't just get, <laughs> you don't get to throw that term out and walk right past it. Please explain yeah. what that is. I actually am not a hundred percent. I think the idea is like, when you first become a Calvinist that you should be locked away for a few years before you like, <laughs> so you settle down a little bit first. Okay. I found something. It's like, okay, I, I Googled it. I Googled it. Um, this is an RC Sproul, uh, you know, article. So wow. he says that um, cage stage Calvinists are basically like, they're identifiable by their insistence on turning every discussion into an argument for limited atonement or for making it their personal mission to ensure everyone they know hears, often quite loudly, the truths of divine election. So, hey. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking okay, about. Okay, good on you, Sproul. I, I disagree with you theologically, but I also agree that we don't need very many of these. Ca- I don't understand what – is it like a cage match? Is that the idea? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it'd been like, like we should keep you in a alive. like we <laughs> yeah. should keep you in a cage until you calm down about Calvinism. <laughs> like we should just well. like hide you away for a little while. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I that is accurate. Like I was, I would, I, my friends would be talking to me about like having a hard time, and I would just talk about you know God's sovereignty, and this is how you need to think about this. Like this is what God ordained for your life, you know, and then you know, I would just damage the friendship. And, and by the way, I did, so. I did confirm it is that they should be locked in a cage and allowed to cool off for a while. Oh, that okay. Is, so I was that, right. That comes I was from. Right. Yes. That's a great <laughs> term. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting you about that. I think we need to implement this on a broader scale though. You know, I think, I think we, can, we can adopt this for a yeah. lot of students. Well, maybe we, we, there's like cage stage deconstruction too yeah. like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. okay let's not get too crazy we're gonna put you in this cage for a little bit <laughs> just, just give me learn teach you some spiritual practices i mean there's there, that's you, obviously give me some richard roar it's yeah, a horrible yeah, thing you get, you get really focused on something or really excited about something and it's hard not to talk about it every chance you get but then you can come across kind of manic and you know you we notice this in our friends sometimes right and we go okay it sounds like they're a little too into this one thing and they can't seem to talk about anything else and it's not it's not sustainable right right yeah right so i don't know i don't know I, that did not answer your question <laughs> but i really feel like just going through suffering i had um i i learned stuff about myself i was able to understand the world better by accessing different kinds of uh, navigating the world, like and understanding my own emotions and instincts and elevating those things above just having correct, quote unquote, correct knowledge about things. And then that just led me into a whole lot of different rooms. And, um, and yeah, I don't know where I'm at now is it's still, I'm still sorting it out. I'm still sorting out. There's still a lot of questions about, you know, 
is there like a right atonement theory or, and, and Jesus and Christology and stuff. Those are a lot of live questions for me, but you know, I'm attracted to, I'm attracted to some open and relational theology. I'm attracted to some like Eastern Orthodox theology and, um, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. John, John, you (laughs) asked about you asked about resources. You asked Sarah yes. about resources, but like most of the resources that have been helpful for the two of us are among all the resources listed on sewyourdeconstructing.com. So rather than hey. give away the <laughs> the milk for free, yeah. uh, of course, although the site is free, um, <laughs> actually costs us money. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, go check that out and see which ones look like they would be helpful for you, basically. And, and you know, as Siri yeah. said, there are all those pages on, on uh, therapy and spiritual practices and communities and a testimonies page of, like, what this is like. But then the bulk of the site is on the topics page. And I think we're up to 15 or so topics, and each of them has 10 to 20 uh, links under it that you can peruse. There are essays and blog posts. There are podcast episodes. There are books and articles, uh, occasional sermon series, stuff like that. So that uh, everything that that she and I have found really helpful is is in those lists, right? Like at, at some point along, uh, they, they, they tend to be ranked from like easiest to process to most scholarly and academic at the bottom of the list. And we just try and slot them in roughly kind of in order. That's brilliant. Yeah. You, you sent the link over to me and I immediately checked it out and it's, uh, I mean, we've needed something like this for a long time. And, um, I, so I think, I think the idea behind it, the concept behind it, um, is, is brilliant. So I love the fact that you guys yeah. put this together. And we're always adding new stuff and we're going to, you know, we'll be adding new sections and stuff. There's a historical Jesus section that's relatively new and, um, some stuff about spiritual abuse and, and whatnot. So it's always been being updated and, and, and tweaked with. It's awesome. Well, Dan, uh, now's your turn. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Sari had a uh, kind of a traumatic, uh, kickstart to, to hers. It, you yeah. know, there was this definite, you know, experience in her life, a uh, negative experience that kind of like launched her into to her, uh, deconstruction. What would you say, like, what was your background and what kind of kickstarted your, your journey? Yeah. So I like to say that I had a moderate, California evangelical upbringing, which I think does pretty good justice. Um, I, I have found that I had more damaging experiences at my Christian schools than I did in my actual church, which was a interdenominational Protestant church, kind of predating non-denominational, but pretty similar by the time I grew up in it. And uh, I think for me, the things that got it going were, first of all, I was a philosophy major in college, and I went to a secular college. I went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California, and I was living outside of the dorms with um, some potheads and drug dealers at various points who were very sweet guys, a good experience there for the most part. Uh, but I was thrust into you know the world of a, a secular philosophy department, and so I had to start thinking things through pretty quickly at 18. And so that combined with um, my, I have a lifelong panic disorder is what we call it in the biz. Uh, but it basically means I get panic attacks and I am susceptible to panic attacks. And I, I manage it quite well now in my 30s, but in my, uh, from third grade through my late 20s, it was a lot harder 
to deal with. And so I would be, I would get panicky about certain things in the text. I would be, pan- you know, you, I'm sure that both of you will relate to this and almost every listener, you know, there's that moment when you read something or hear something about a topic and you all of a sudden realize that if this thing you just heard or read is true, then that calls into question five or 10 other things that are pretty central to your life and belief system and maybe even your identity. So uh, recently, I'll give an example. Somebody on the You Have Permission Facebook group was talking about another podcast that, that she was listening to, and they were contextualizing Judaism and early Christianity as you know, a part of ancient history and really making sense when you learn about ancient history that people believed these things and they thought about them the way that ancient people thought about them. And for some reason for her that, and and she said, you know, for some reason that just clicked all this other stuff into place and I'm kind of scrambling about it. I'm I'm paraphrasing her, but I was like, I completely know what you're talking about. And (laughs) that was the experience for me. And then throw in an anxiety disorder on top of that. uh, And you get uh, quite a bit of combustible material you might say. And so for me, it was like, um, on the one hand, it was worry that I was not taking Jesus seriously enough around things like money. You know, I was reading Luke and in Luke, it's not the poor in spirit. It's just the poor. And there's tons of stuff about, you know, woe to you who are rich. And of course I wasn't rich at the time. I was a college student who worked at a sandwich shop, but I knew that I came from, you know, a pretty, pretty well-to-do family, upper middle class. As I said, my dad's a therapist and, you know, like kind of having anxiety about getting that wrong. And then maybe like, you know, reading the sheep and the goats and am I going to be a goat? Uh, I certainly don't, you know, give my tunic to the other. I don't, I'm not out there feeding and clothing people all the time. And then, um, the other bit around that time was the Canaanite genocide passages, uh, largely in Judges and Joshua, and like just feeling like, holy crap, what is this God? Who is this God that the Bible portrays? I don't think God would be that way. Uh, and then mixing that in, like I said, with the with the philosophy education that I was getting and, and learning to think critically, but also reading a lot of people who are quite quite critical of Christianity and then others who weren't. Um, and a lot of Greek philosophy, like early Greek philosophy, which I think is fairly consonant with most Christian theology. And, uh, anyway, that's now I'm, now I'm like doddering a little bit, but, uh, those were a couple things kind of simultaneous for simultaneous for me around 18 to 21 that I would say kickstarted my deconstruction in earnest. So, so almost like sort of uh, reading outside of the echo chamber, uh, just by virtue of your your major, in a sense, and yeah. uh, that kind of kickstarted your your questions. And interesting, yeah. I <clears throat> go on. You, you no, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was to say like now I feel bad because um, <clears throat> I didn't, I didn't, I personally didn't necessarily have any incredibly negative experience. I had a couple along the way. Um, and, you know, through like evangelical experiences, uh, which didn't come later until college, but, uh, mine was also kind of more on the academic side, you know, just, just by virtue of like reading different things outside of, um, you know, the things that I had read before, uh, that kind of challenged the notions of what I believe to be true up until that point. And then just 
through the, the love of learning and the desire for more information, it just kind of snowballed from there. That's you were, like the, did you come that, from a... That's the best story of deconstruction I've ever heard. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I have no hard feelings towards anyone, really, yeah. you know? <laughs> that's like but, deconstruction. It's so nice. It's a wonderful like, life. Why are you here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Why are you here? Um, well, did you come from a Elka background, right? Did, did I hear that, that you were oh, raised gosh. evangelical Lutheran? are just shuddered that you, you referred to it as Elka, but yes. Oh, is that not what you're supposed to say? No, it's, it's ELCA, but yeah, they, not, uh, people, we, we were used to hearing Missouri Synod Lutherans call it, refer to us as Elka, you know. So, oh, really? Um, oh, like it's yeah. derogatory? Almost, yeah. Because like, they're like, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, infinitely more conservative. And uh, Oh, and, I know. Uh, My dad's yeah. ELCA. That's why I wondered, like, I, I mean, mean yeah. you were probably raised with some ideas, like some openness already, some progressive ideas already. Is that true or yeah. not really? Yeah, I think, I think so. Looking back, I mean, like I tell my friends, I said, you know, there, there was certainly this idea of heaven and hell, uh, kind of in playing in the background, but it was never a central, uh, point, you know, like in, in sermons or otherwise, you know, it, a lot of it was, you know, I remember one of the Lutheran hymns, uh, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love, they, you know, and mm-hmm. so like, it was never front and center and never, at least, you know, in my, in my experience, in my upbringing. So it was never this fire and brimstone upbringing that, you know, so I I didn't really have that to kind of push back against. Uh, it wasn't until college when I I moved down to to Columbus and, um, you know, made friends with a group of, uh, you know, college kids on, on campus and they were kind of caravanning to this, uh, more evangelical church and that was my first experience with like kind of this modern worship style and people speaking in tongues and falling on the floor. And it was, it was culture shock for me. And, mm-hmm. um, that was my first taste of it. And then also I, I think some sort of like negative experiences there. Um, although not, not many. Um, and, uh, I, I think just some of the theology that just kind of made me scratch my head that kind of went against what, what I grew up with and also made me ask a, a lot of questions. And then, you know, further on down the line, I, you know, ended up getting married at one point and, uh, my now ex-wife, um, you know, was born and raised in kind of that evangelical world. And, and so we started going as, as a, as a family. And then right around the time when my daughter uh, was about to be born, um, really started to buckle down and say, okay, what is it that I believe? Uh, therefore, how do I want to also eventually raise my daughter? Right. That's a big um, one, right? Yeah. <laughs> My daughter is you know, for me to kind of like drift through it. Right. But like, I don't, you know, I want to yeah. make sure, you know, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. That keeps coming up when we have these conversations. It's like, <laughs> you're like, okay, what am I going to teach my kid? Cause Dan and I both have kids who are about to turn one. Um, <laughs> so oh, get some youngins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And our first and I, two born a week apart. Our first they're born a week, a week oh apart. Oh my gosh. So just worked out that way. Are you guys getting sleep yet at all? Or are we? Yeah, not quite. We're, we get okay. sleep now. Do you guys, Sari? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're good. We, we sleep train the crap out of those kids. I think uh. Soren <laughs> yeah, was pretty well trained by six months or so for sleep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, John, uh, I have a theory. Well, Sari and I have been kind of kicking around this theory as we verbally process it on podcasts that uh, <laughs> the stricter your background, the harder the deconstruction that will result, right? Like, the larger the house of cards, the more personally devastating it will be for you and the more cleanup work 
you'll end up having to do as a result mm-hmm. of that. And so that goes one way to sort of explaining why your deconstruction experience was frankly quite a bit rosier and uh, didn't it didn't end up causing so much conflict with your narrative of origin we might call it right yeah yeah i think that's i think that's absolutely true and i think i think we've seen that in the stories that we've been told uh over the years and yeah. um yeah and i mean adam and i had very different experiences which i thought which is what i thought was kind of neat about when we first started this this project because he came from a very different background uh than i did and so um you know, yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm far less bitter. Uh, not that he's bitter, but yeah. you know. Well, yeah, but there, there's also a flip side to that. So if if that mechanism is accurate, that like the stricter and more involved, generally stricter, you know, is more involved. And you're at church more days a week. You you would have more behaviors that your family does, that your church does, that the wider culture doesn't do. The more you increase that, you you also increase buy-in. And so what what I think we see uh, in the data from mainline churches declining is that if you if you have a looser spiritual background, uh, you also have lower buy-in among young people. And this is kind of, for me, the interesting push and pull tension, you know, for raising Soren, for instance, is like, well, we want him to have access to his faith community as like a very real, tool and set of resources for him, but we don't want him to have these possible pitfalls of like, you know, overzealotry or whatever. And it's, I don't know, I don't know, Sari and John, if you guys feel this, but I, Jaffrey and my wife and I were talking about this recently that, you know, we were so conditioned as evangelicals to think that parents of our friends who didn't want their kids' religion to go too far. You know, it's cool that you go to youth group, but like, let's not get too into it. We thought that those were like the real enemies of God. And now as we start thinking about our own kids, it's like those parents are starting to seem a lot more reasonable to us now. And it's kind of messing with our minds a little bit. John, maybe that was your parents. And so you come from one of those households. But I don't know, Sari, do you you resonate with that? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm just still sitting. Yeah, I'm sitting thinking about my daughter and I'm thinking about how growing up there was a culture in, you know, Awana and and at my Presbyterian church, just like, we got to get these kids to say this prayer, you know, to save them from hell, you know, like, right. and then, then you got the grace, right? And you're like in the door or whatever. But now I'm looking at, I mean, when, when my daughter, Lucrecia, when she was, a couple months old, my husband and I had recently read Brad Jerzak's book, More Christ Like God. And mm. we're, we're looking at, we're looking at, at Lukey in the, in the bassinet. And I'm like, would you ever send her to hell <laughs> to my husband? <laughs> and I'm like, well, and God loves us like at least as much as we love her. Right. Like <laughs> and probably, probably much more like, and I'm thinking like, I never want her to think that that God might send her to hell, you know, <laughs> it's like just so such a contrast to, to the environment I grew up in. And, Much you know. less that 
Much less that if God were being just, he definitely would send her to hell. Right. Or he like has to in, or, in line with to. his character. You know? Unless right. this fourth quarter Hail Mary plan works, you know, or whatever. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, like that, it's like that Rourke quote where he says, you know, that, then you end up in a situation where you have human beings who are more forgiving and more loving than God, you yeah. know. Right. Right. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. I did not. So I had a, I had a, I had a very weird upbringing because, um, not only did I have parents who were, uh, religious, uh, per se, but my dad was also my pastor. So, you know, mm. so <laughs> I, I kind of, Kind of different, different uh, situation than most. your situation. It's a whole is, another set of things, yeah. It's more like our friend uh, Trip Fuller, who does the Homebrew yeah. Christianity podcast. Yeah. Like he's yep. a he is a faithful son of a liberal Baptist preacher in the South. <laughs> it's awesome. just like that makes him such a unicorn, but also it, yeah. it makes his perspective for me anyway so damn refreshing because. Uh, and in fact, I, I'm planning a series with him and his, or a, an episode of with him and his dad, and then with him and his son, a little two-parter that we oh, need wow. to get rolling. Cause, cause I want to look at that more, right? Like how, yeah. what did you guys do? You know, Tripp's dad is George. Like George, what did you do? Especially given all the insane cultural pressure around you in the South as a Baptist minister, how did you raise Trip to think that that stuff was silly and Trip has raised his son Elgin to be a little, he's like a little progressive theologian, a 13 year old or whatever. And it's, it's incredible. And I'm like, gosh, man, I speak for millions of us when I say, please give us a roadmap for this yeah, because it seems like you did the impossible, you know? Well, and I think, I think there is, I think the, at least in my experience anyway, the reason that I came out of it. Okay. was like, had I, had I completely uh, disregarded religion entirely, it would have been a hundred percent because of the ugliness of church politics that I got, uh, Mm. that I had an insight to. It would have had, it would have had nothing at all to do with the way I was raised to believe certain things, nothing at all to do with that. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I have very fond memories of, uh, you know, um, Sunday school and, uh, um, you know, summer, the, the summer camp thing that we used to do like, but yeah, the church politics thing would have, would have pushed me away. But I think to your, to your question, I think at, you know, I'm not speaking for, for trip, but I'd be very fascinated to hear what he says and what his dad says. I've never actually sat down with my dad to talk about this either. And so now, now you've got me wondering, you gotta do it. You gotta have him on. (laughs) Yeah. You got it. He's, yeah, he's full. I mean, and he's the one that really, my dad, uh, people ask me, they're like, well, what does your dad think about you, what, what you do? You know, like you dirty heretic, you know? Um, <laughs> and I said, my dad gives me most of the books that lead to most of the guests I have on the podcast. They're like, are you kidding me? Yeah. So like my, it's opened up this whole new world of uh, conversation between my dad and I. Um, I mean, he, he turned me on to Marcus Borg. He turned me on to, you know, all sorts of different, uh, yeah that I, that I really love, you know, uh, Brian McLaren, like all those, all those guys. Um, and Diana Butler Bass being one of his favorites, you know, he turned me on to her as well. So like my, my dad, um, I I think growing up, both of my parents really, um, you know, we were obviously as the pastor's kids, we were expected to be at church and we, we helped out with everything when somebody didn't show up as you can imagine. But, um, but it was never a situation where it was forced on our throats. It was never just hammered into us. Um, they simply said, Hey, you know, this is the way we, we raised you with these values. 
Um, but they, they left enough space for us to screw up and make mistakes. And then, you know, I think they did a good enough job to the point where we kind of self-corrected, you know, if we were like, you know, going too nuts, uh, too, too far off the path. But, you know, my mom bought me my first punk rock album with all sorts of yeah. curse words in it. You know, yeah. meanwhile, I've got friends who are like lighting their, uh, you know, Green Day CDs on fire. You're like, what? what? Why? <laughs> you know? Okay, that's funny because so, and I, I should, I need to give my parents a shout out here. They actually did a great job with me as well. <laughs> Um, I was going to do the same thing. Sarah, I'm like, my I, parents are cool too. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Because I know, no. Sarah, you're quite close with your dad and y- you guys talk about a lot of this stuff. I, I just mean that like my evangelical schooling and my anxiety did the number on me. I was allowed to listen to secular music. I'm the one who personally initiated returning <laughs> the social distortion CD back to the warehouse because I felt guilty I was the one who figured out how to use the tape dub recorder thing to do silence over the swear words so that I might, so that I <laughs> would edit your bad. own albums. I edited my yeah. own tapes. Yes. Because oh I, gosh. because I felt bad having the swear words on there. And, and so it's like, it, of course this stuff can come from all kinds of directions. In my case, it didn't come from my parents. It came internally. Yeah. You know, and and picking up on certain signals, you know, from from whomever, but like, yeah, it, it's it's funny. Oh. It's not always parents' faults, and it's not it's not all up to the parents either. Right. But there is obviously like this middle way that your parents successfully did, that my parents successfully did, and that Trip's dad and, and mom successfully did, and that he's doing successfully. That's like it seems worth kind of studying that model. Like, there's something there, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to say my dad got me into the Smashing Pumpkins and Portis Head. Nice. So oh, yeah. nice. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. I want to be that cool dad. I'm trying my best. You know, <laughs> my daughter's my daughter's seven and she sat down the other night. One of my favorite like uh kind of hardcore bands uh did it like a twentieth anniversary. Like they played the entire like their set sophomore album from beginning to end mm-hmm. on a live stream. And she sat in sat in there with me and was so into it that when her mom came to pick her up, she was like really upset. She's like, but I want to, I want to watch the rest of this. And I was like, oh, I'm such a good dad. I'm such a good dad. <laughs> felt dad so wins. good about that. Yeah. What band? And I could see- What's that? Oh, uh, Project 86 was one of my Project favorite. 86. Yeah, nice. Classic. They played uh, Drawing Black Lines, man, from, from beginning to end. And it was, uh, it was great. I was Cause like, I know that Emery just did one, but it was their first record walls. And they, they oh, just do it. And Jimmy World's been doing them too. That this is like a thing that bands are doing. Like a nice well produced like album front to back. It's a pretty cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean the, the the audio quality was was great. And then of course like they're taking advantage of all the, the technology with camera angles and yep. like a drone over top. You know, it's been really cool to see how bands have uh, gotten creative in That's during cool. the pandemic. But yeah. Anywho, um <laughs> I know we're I know we're getting long on time here, but um the, the, the one thing uh, I want to ask you guys about is, uh, of course, is uh, where can folks go uh, to get to the website? Remind them what the website is called again. Go ahead, Sari. So you're, decon- <laughs> so you're deconstructing.com. That's so you're deconstructing.com. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming back on, uh, Dan, thank you. Know, it, great to talk to you as always. Uh, we yeah. always have a good time. Uh, and Sari, so, so nice to, uh, to meet you and, and to have yeah, you on. Thanks you for too. You, you do good work. Yeah, well, you do, you. man. Thank you. 
Thanks, we, we, we didn't even say there are a number of deconstructionists episodes, episodes on the, in yeah. those, on those topics pages on the website. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. yeah, well, you know, well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks guys. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks guys. Have, have a great night. See you, John. Have a good one. Does God have a face? Does he have a body or even a name? If he does, does he know that I'm
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.